What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Apartment 113 podcast, where we talk with cool folks in the cannabis and psychedelics industry to learn about their projects and celebrate their successes. My name is Rob Sanchez, and this is episode 34. We're joined today by certified Gangier and co-founder of the Old Man of the Mountain, Charles Stockstill. Charles is pushing the envelope on cannabis education and connoisseurship. He's bringing a lifetime of cultivation background and a knack for event production to the table. The Old Man of the Mountain provides hash bar cannabis tasting experiences for events and educational sessions to promote community and cannabis appreciation. Find out more by connecting with Charles on LinkedIn. Look for a link in the show notes and enjoy the show. Charles, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. I'm glad to be here. I was looking forward to this all month. Hey, yeah, we set this one up a while back. <laughs> it's a, the joys of virtual scheduling sometimes is a little too far out. <laughs> thanks for inviting me on the show, Rob. Uh, our company, uh, me and my wife's company is the Old Man of the Mountain. We're certainly, uh, or I'm certainly glad to be here. She's taking care of the kids tonight. So. Teamwork there. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and um, I've been seeing what Old Man of the Mountain is is up to as a... Um, a guiding light and as an influencer for connoisseurship and cannabis connoisseurship in general. That's excellent to see how you've how you've turned the certified Gangier program into this consulting business. Um, yeah, love to hear about that, man. If and and actually, if we try to rewind the clock just a little bit more, how about your early cannabis journey and maybe the steps before um, the Gangier certification first? Okay. Yeah. Um... Well, um, you know, I started my cannabis journey reading High Times back in the 90s, just about like everybody else, and watching Kyle Cushman and Danny Danko, who now have since become friends of mine, and uh, it's pretty wild. But, uh, um, you know, I started growing Gorilla Grows out in my green belt in townhomes, that kind of thing, anywhere I could, out in fields, you know, just underneath trees, whatever I could do, just so I wouldn't have to buy the swag there, the uh, DC kind bud that was coming through in the days that was just ungodly expensive. And uh, that's kind of what got me enthralled with cannabis is I realized what a stress reliever it was because I was really angry all the time as a kid. And as soon as I started smoking cannabis, that anger kind of went away. And I was able to de-stress and realize what the plant was about and start self-medicating without realizing why I was doing it or any of those reasons until many years later on. So Um, kind of found some mellowness or found some good vibes in there early. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The only thing that had kind of given me issue is, uh, you know, everybody had told me weed was bad and it would be a downfall and all that. When I found out they would have been lying to me, I kind of thought they had been lying about everything else. And that took me down a very bad path for a long time. But happy to see I got out of all that. Yeah, dude, for real, though, right? You learn that one that one thing wasn't presented truthfully. You kind of have to look at the rest of them (laughs) just to see if there's any other shenanigans in there. Right. But come to find out, they were being pretty honest about the rest of the illicit drugs out there. So, <laughs> good to stay that's a good outcome, or that's a good conclusion to have. Better. Alcohol, too, yeah. So cannabis is the uh, go-to. Drink. Oh, yeah, I've never really been a drinker. Um, it never agreed with me, oh. so that was, my family could always drink me under the table, but I could always smoke them under the table, so <laughs> I was kind of <laughs> the green to sleep. of the family. 
Uh, man, I relate to you there, I think. And early on, I, I was kind of opposed to drinking so much. Uh, seeing the scene early, like in high school, college days, I was the guy in the corner with the bong or with the horribly rolled joints. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's interesting what you said about the kind of the mood, the mood modulation that can come from cannabis and like helping you see the things in maybe a more positive light, right? It's not necessarily making huge change, but just that perspective shift can be a lot to, to help out. Yep. And you don't always realize it's happening at first. You just, you know, you think you're just getting stoned and enjoying life. And then you start to realize that there's actually a lot more purpose behind it than that. And then, uh, it all starts to slowly fold together as you mature. It's pretty cool. That's the wisdom speaking right there, isn't it? Um, you know, after I started growing and all that stuff, uh, see, I got pretty heavy into cannabis about 2005, I want to say, and really started wanting to grow it professionally and really get into the business. And that was, you know, in Colorado, right as about the time we got medical. And you, know, you could actually start doing it to some legal amount. And I had 21 plants at my house, and I got raided. And they knew the exact number when they came to my door, so I knew somebody had narked on me at that point. But yeah, that's, that's a story brutal. for a different day. <laughs> <laughs> Next episode. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I ended up calling the lawyer out of High Times for Colorado. His name was Robert Corey. He made one phone call, got me all my uh, growing equipment back, my dead plants, and my shotgun, which was just for hunting. It was just in the house, but they had to take it because the screwed-up laws I in Colorado see. about that stuff. And, right. Uh, gave me all my stuff back, and uh, that got me in the newspaper and a couple other different articles, and that got me, you know, my first little taste of fame. And then I really started to fight for patients' rights and uh, really get my grow going again. A few, you know, fast forward a few years later, um, I got into the point where I could clone really well, you know, three, four thousand clones every two or three months off just my little ten by ten grow in my basement, and I was supplying wow. all these big growers in Denver all over town, just one after another after another. And I got to meet some really cool people, make a lot of good money. That's when clones were going for like $25 a pop, but you know, 10 inches, if so. Right. Really right. good days. And then, uh, you know, I started having all this extra trim around, all this extra larf and all these extra buds just from all this business I was doing. And I didn't know what to do with it. And one of my friends had found, uh, actually it was my ex who had found Frenchy Cannoli videos and she had her friend tra uh, translate the videos from French at that point in time um, and transcribed them on a piece of paper. So I was reading the paper and watching the videos, you know, over and over and over again. So I finally got it right. It took me a good year, year and a half to, you know, hone in on all the specifics of it. But at that time, That's... nobody really wanted hash. You know, this was uh, 2009, about. So early for the cannabis industry in general, right? At that time, yeah. it was like Colorado only. Colorado, California, Oregon. <laughs> yep. So, you know, I'm starting to pull in some pretty large money, you know, five figures a month at this point. And I get raided for my second time. But I have all my paperwork in line and they can't take anything. But they found I had a warrant for running a stoplight, not paying a ticket. So they hauled me in that night anyway. I got out the next day and you know, went back to my plants. <laughs> I was like, man, you guys suck. And, uh, you know, they right? kept harassing me, harassing me. I was like, you know, I get all my paperwork and everything. And uh, they came back through again. They ended up trying to take my daughter away. And they did. They uh, took my five-year-old daughter away and gave her to my grandparents for about seven months. And I was one of wow. four people okay. in Colorado to win against the state and get my child back that year. So that got me in the newspaper again. 
And uh, it was yeah, real nice man. to put Happy that. to hear that too, kind of reunite, right? Absolutely. It was good to be back with our family and, uh, you know, knew that we had fought the good fight and put a little precedent out there because then other families started giving their children back to Colorado. And anytime I found a situation that I could help on, that children had been removed, I reached out to those people and try to help because you just got to learn their system, play their system, and you know, it all comes out in the end. You have to actually so, play the you know, game. Got, you can't just resist, and, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. So got her back, and then you know things really started to blow up real big again. And then I ended up getting robbed uh, for 14 pounds uh, by one of my buddies I'd been doing oh, like man. work with for the last about year. You know, go over to his house. You know, I'm dropping off the, the pounds, set the box down, turn around to go shake somebody else's hand, and next thing I, I know, my head is going through a glass table. Um, then they're Whoa. just pounding me on my head, asking me where my wallet, my gun is, my, all my, you know, all my stuff. And I didn't have any of that with me one day cause I was going to see my buddy, you know, it was not and, that uh, kind of transaction. No, yeah. no. <laughs> so I stood up after like six guys had been beating on me and I walked out of this guy's house. I, I, I yeah. couldn't imagine their faces. I could only see about two feet in front of me at this point. It was just a cloud, you know, blood all over my face and everything. Dude, and, yeah, uh, that's brutal. So I, wa- I walk out. I'm walking through the neighborhood. I call my ride. They uh, come pick me up, but not for the cops see me. And they're like, why are you all bloody? And, you know, at that point, I'm like, you know, this just happened at this house. I just got robbed. I'm in a, uh, I'm in Aurora with a guy who I grew up with and who's now the senior detective of Aurora. So I drop his name. Okay. They let me go. Yeah. Go chase after these guys. Get him all hemmed up. He's still in jail as far as I know. Um, wow. So, yeah, that was pretty crazy. And then uh, I just dropped out for about 10 years of the game after that. I lost you know, all my investors because they weren't sure mm. if I was in on it or if I'd actually got robbed. And so everybody just backed out and let me do my own thing. And I moved to Texas and started you know, running a AAA oh. station and got really good at that for a long time. Uh, okay. And, uh, so it was kind of a sign a of like a small career change, right? A little shift of focus yeah. after that last one. Yeah. And I, I can only imagine, dude. Yeah. So it was just a huge change. And there's a shift in the laws as well there in Texas. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, just one gram of hash down there, I believe, still to this day is a felony. And we're waiting on them to so, catch up. I don't know who's going to be last, Texas or Kansas. <laughs> Probably Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it's you know it's bad if even Kansas does something before you. So right after that's where all I that, grew I, uh, up, actually, you know, it's right before the it's right before the pandemic hit, and I had just gotten uh, out of a relationship and met Catherine at the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, I was growing in Oklahoma at this point. Because I moved out of Texas, I said, the heck with this. I'm going back to the cannabis game. So I did that for about a year yeah. <laughs> in uh, 2020. <laughs> and uh, I set up a couple of commercial grows, had a really good time. Then uh, the pandemic hit, was making really good money. And then she got an offer for a travel nurse to just go make oodles of money. So I said, all right, let's go. Oh. And I uh, took my kid and her two children and did them homeschool for two and a half years uh, during oh, the whole wow. pandemic. That's and we awesome, traveled man. the country all yeah. together. Which years did you homeschool the kids through? Uh, from March 2021 to... Like second grade to sixth grade or kind of what, what oh, we've age got our, range? Our, yeah, our kids are, uh, right now they're 14, 10, and 8. So they oh, were... Man. I had, you I had one in every teacher school across system. the board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For real. Um, I think and my... I never, um, oh, sorry, getting a little bit of lag. Yeah, my daughter is actually seven months, and I, we're thinking about homeschooling her eventually here. So 
still got a few years to figure that out. I might have to ask if you some you can, questions. Do it. If you can, <laughs> if you got the time, do it. It's cool. So you were playing teacher so, for a few years. Good. Yeah, it was really neat. It was definitely kind of like Frenchie says, he had a, uh, a time of year of his life where he was a father. And that was the most important thing to me and, or him. And I think I'm going through that point in my life right now because that's what I get the most enjoyment out of is being a dad. That's excellent. Yeah, really living that, living that, that life now, kind of stepping into it. Helping, helping raise the next generation, watching them make their Absolutely. own decisions. That's got to be crazy. Oh, yeah. My, my 14-year-old daughter, she's pretty involved with uh, the garden, whether it be tomatoes or marigolds or anything like that. So she knows what she's doing. She's getting passed on. Just like my dad the green me, thumb. He was just teaching me how yeah. to do Yeah, subsistence farming. That's how I grew up. So. Okay, so you had your family was already farming sustainably and and you, you were able to learn yeah. some of those skills. Yeah, my family early, huh? was a bunch of hippies, and uh, you know the whole sustainable thing from the seventies. They were on that wagon. <laughs> awesome, dude. Yeah, that's got to be fun. Um, I'm sure that's an interesting upbringing, and it's a ton of skills to just bring into adulthood, man. It's some some stuff that you feel like everyone needs to know, but um, society kind of makes it, it a little easier. This far. Just from learning how to grow peas when I was four years old. Now here I am with <laughs> you know this ten foot monster in the back behind me. Yeah, that lady looming over you back there. What what cultivar do we have here in the yard? Uh, that I think's Little Wayne from Motherload Gardens. Ooh, they tend to do really good awesome. up here in Maine. You get them about two feet, three foot before you put them out in May, and then they get real big. Nice. And in Maine, you have one outdoor season, or do you like depth to make that into two harvests? You, you could depth if you wanted to, but our grow season's so short up here; it's just it's a challenge. You know, we get about three it's months. It's better to good weather. Oh, I see. You just kind of need to maximize what you that time you have outside. Yeah, like two days ago, our light cycle is officially twelve hours, so we're pretty far ahead equatorially, you know. Yeah, for real, right? I'm I'm trailing behind you guys back here, in Vegas. Yep. So you know, after we were uh, travel nursing and all that, we're in Florida, in uh, Cocoa Beach, and I'm on uh, Frenchie's page, and that was the day that he passed. And on that same day, I'd found out about the Ganjay program, and that was the last place that he had put his knowledge. So after I got that news, um, I went and smoked a big blunt out on the beach and a big hash cigar. And then I found out about the Ganjay program while I was scrolling through his page. So I wrote them every day for two weeks from the day that Frenchie passed away, I believe. It might have been the next day, but it was real close. And, uh, you know, they told me they were full, and they kept telling me they were full. But they, after about two and a half weeks, I got a letter saying that somebody had dropped out, and they could now accept me. And so I, you know, jumped oh, on man. it, and within, uh, I think, December of 2021 is when I went through and did my live training and my exam on the same week. Yeah, and, okay. You know, got certified. It was, it was a challenge. That's it scared excellent. the heck out of me. I was sweating bullets, and people around <laughs> me were failing all over the place, and crying yeah i just oh gosh it was a moment man right and for those that don't know the gun the final step of the certified ganjier is um you can do this separate you can go out for a live training and then come back for the testing or you can go out in the same week which uh, seems to be how you've did it you did it and how i did it as well in march of 2022 and it was definitely stressful the night before i was reading my my test paper again and again just trying to confirm i knew everything because i that was still i don't know if that's the law (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like everyone's hanging out basically and relaxing because their live training's over it's like guys tomorrow i gotta hit the (laughs) 
I got to sit at the desk and get this right, man. And there were a few yep. people that failed on the, I think on the written, there was a few, but in the actual live assessment, there was a lot of, um, of repeat attempts that were needed on that one. Oh, I'll, um, I'll be the first to admit, I did not pass on my first one. It took the second try for me to pass. And I thought I'd lost was it there at that s- point. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Was there something that you, um, was there something specifically that you think you maybe missed the first time around or something that needed more attention in the review? Well, me and Derek had concluded that I had thought too deeply about that assessment and really tried too hard. And the second oh, assessment, kinda. I just ran through real quick and pulled all the numbers. And I, I, I was on spot. I wasn't even a point off on the number. Oh, the interesting. The yeah, it's kind of just like a little self-sabotage, overthinking. Yeah, exactly. And I saw yeah. that happen to other people, too, that would fry their palate the night before just by smoking all night or drinking all night. Next day, they couldn't taste anything. And it was just, it was, I felt for those people. Dude, I smoked a lot up there on that week. <laughs> My palate yeah. was pretty spent by Friday, but it, the, yeah. the test was awesome, man. And the, the whole experience, I think becoming a certified ganjier was, um, was very memorable. And the folks that you meet throughout the process have been top notch and yourself included. I just love that the certification is really a sign of passion for the plant. It's a sign yeah, of, you know, dedication to the community. Yeah. <laughs> I found out through this process that I have family that lives out there in uh, Eureka and Reading that had been out there for the last 80 years that knew everybody and everybody knew what her. The heck? Yeah, yeah. I was like, what? So I ended up staying out at her house for free that whole time and, uh, and getting hooked up with, you know, the club of Northwestern California. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, and then learning dude, that definitely. Kevin had been watching me for like the last, no, three or four years while I was doing stuff in Oklahoma and traveling the country and stuff and my breeding projects. And he knew who I was and I didn't know who he was. I was like, wait a minute. Oh, here. Dude. Yeah, that's got to feel good. <laughs> that was real cool. And now me and right. him really kind of you know, connected and we talked from time to time and invested in each other's friendship. So that's that's really cool. Yeah, man, definitely. I think it's um, it's been a great way for these some of these legacy guys like Frenchie, Kevin, um, these people that have been working for the space so long that are getting kind of pinched by the margins and the legislation, the licensing, and just all the other red tape of the cannabis industry. It's been an excellent way to spread that knowledge and make a business out of having all that experience. I mean, there's so many folks across the nation and, and the world even that want that knowledge or that don't have those decades of growing experience or that perfect environment that Northern California has. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years at this point and uh, I was blown away by California. That's just, that's the mecca. <laughs> yeah. And, and then how did you end up in Maine then choosing was, was Maine on the cards for the caregiving well, program and the plant count or for other reasons? Well, that, that was part of it, um, but we were we were looking at other places like the Finger Lakes in New York, you know, uh, growing in, living in Texas and Oklahoma, as well as um, my wife Catherine, we wanted to get out of the hot, and so I guess we're climate climate refugees at this point, is what I guess yes. we're called. So. <laughs> Escape to the <laughs> so cool we moved weather. Up here and <laughs> it's, uh, it reminds me of Colorado 30 years ago, before everybody moved to Colorado. And wow. there's still yeah. open wild spaces up here. There's still lots of nature. And Colorado used to have a tourist season where, you know, everybody came during winter and then everybody left during the summertime. And it's kind of the opposite here. Everybody comes in the summertime. Some people come in the wintertime, it seems like. But uh, 
Our population in Maine doubles in the wintertime. It's absolutely insane. And you guys get some pretty serious winters over there. I lived in Minnesota for a while. I'm sure it's it's uh, rivaling that with the level of snow that you're getting off the coast. It's, too. it's been pretty mild, honestly. Growing up in Colorado, I saw, you know, seven-foot storms when I was a kid quite often. But you don't see them anymore. Uh, the way the, okay. the, the heat's going. And same thing up here. There's a lot more wet. I see. I see. Yeah, Maine is one state I have not been to yet. I need to get up in that, that little pocket of the country over there in the Northeast. How is this? How is the industry and the scene evolving in Maine? I know that it was so caregiver heavy for a long time that the well, that's industry gone down by that's gone down by a third, if not half, over this last year. As many caregiver licenses have been lost, um, we're oh, kind of facing they the same issues that we're having in California. Uh, larger MSOs moving in. Uh, yeah, are they the not renewing down. the caregiver licenses, or it's just harder to profit as a caregiver? It seems like it's harder to profit. I see. You're just doing too much work for the for the value at that point, or you have to yeah. sell your product and for so much. That behind me is just for fun. I'm like, you know, if I sell that for a profit, I'll be tickled, but I doubt that will happen. It's mainly <laughs> That's just going the, to mass production. And, I see. Okay. And um, have have you gotten into selecting your cultivars then for hash, or do you make hash out of any cultivar? Um. Very complicated question. Um, the first part, yes, <laughs> hey. I do have my own strain called G-Fire that I've been uh, working with for about 15 years. That is a really good washer. Although it did not like Maine at all, and I can show you. It's uh, This is pathetic, actually. This plant here. Uh-oh. Looking yeah, crispy. But it's got one branch. <laughs> one branch that's doing just fine. But had Sepatoria come in and just knock out all my G-Fire. Um, it just oh, didn't man. like it up here. It, and the, the summer up here was extremely wet. I'm not the only one. A lot of my friends are having really bad problems up here this year because of how much rain. We had 45 days of consecutive rain this summer with like three days and then 32 days after that of rain. Wow. Wow. And in outdoor cultivation with cannabis, how do you mitigate the rain that way? Do you just let the plants just no, need to survive? I've got survive? really sandy soil. That's about all I got. <laughs> uh, just try to drain the water away, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. And then, you know, lots of sulfur, lots of, cop lots of copper sulfide too. Not lots, but, you know, what's directed. So a little bit of awareness there. Do you think that your, um, your G-Fire will adapt here or maybe uh, be able uh, to lean into the environment? Breeding? If I do some breeding, it's a possibility if, you know, if I breed it out a little bit, but I don't know if I'm going to try it again outdoor next year just because I had eight of them and only two are barely chunking along and they're not very happy. Oh man. And if it's such a good yielder and it's good for washing, you might as well yep. just have it inside. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It is tempting though to grow those so outdoor monsters. You were monsters. also asking how I'd come up with uh this whole old man of the mountain thing. And I wouldn't have come up with that if it weren't for Frenchie and Ganji program. Yeah, dude, let's hear the part. story. So, uh, going, while I was going through the whole online program, I'm trying to figure out what am I, what am I going to do for a business to support my family? And I know it's not going to be growing weed, even though I'm ex really good at it. Um, just, there's too much involved with that these days. It's real hard unless you've got, a big commercial backer, and that's not what I want to do anymore. So I came up with, you know, kind of this Knights of the Table idea, you know, Arthur, uh, but 
but based off of the old man of the mountains teachings from uh, the Hashishans or the assassins from back in the day. So I wanted to create a platform where cannabis sommeliers, ganjiers, or like-minded people could advance uh, the world of hash, uh, whether it be through education, through production, through growing, cultivation, you know, any number of facets, uh, kind of pull it all together and drive the market towards this final magic of the plant that Frenchie shared with all of us. And that is one of the first sessions, too, in the Certified Ganjier program, digging into the history of cannabis. And the ancient history and the world history of the plant is unbelievable how much we have as a society or as multiple societies have kind of changed the, the narrative from the earlier days when cannabis was such a pivotal role in rituals, even in sustenance with seed fibers and, and things like that. And I think they even point out that at the time of the hash, hash, hashishans, they, uh, they were kind of um, scapegoated by the, by the society even yep. at that time, which was almost the beginning of kind of the, the villainization, right? Or the stigma could have almost started right there at that time, just because there was no understand, not too much understanding of that, of that sect and kind of of their rituals. And so they just kind of hung on the fact that they had cannabis and hash and, and kind of villainized the thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a more of the smear campaign repeated. You know, I, I imagine, uh, Asshole and Slinger probably took uh, notes from what was happening in history from that situation to see how he could reenact it. Yes, because it just kind of was redone almost century after century in one form or another. And now we're sort of unraveling that knot still, untying it, trying to figure out <laughs> how to get it all straight again. Uh, what do you think about yep. the, the industry's approach so far in trying to remove that stigma? I don't think it's working. I think that the models that we've created in all these different states and medical and recreational models are failing and it's giving power to the pharmaceutical and multi-state organizations. Uh, that none of the programs are necessarily united or getting everything 100% right. And that's what kind of lends the space for a federal program or for someone else to step in and try to smooth over the gaps. I, big business or big tobacco, whatever you want to call it, is keeping us divided, and it's working. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, uniting as a community, helping to share the love for some of these, like, sun-grown farmers or smaller shops definitely helps. But it is just a uh, a battle of the times, right, with change, and yeah. the cannabis industry has been through so much. I mean, the last 30 years in cannabis could probably be compared to like a f 150 years of alcohol or, you know, 200 years of, of that with just all the law changes and industry differences. The fact that you can go like 700 miles away and have completely different laws. Uh, it's, it is well, messy. What's interesting is uh, there's this book called the history of drugs that Kimberly Canoli recommended to me. Uh, and it goes through like Tylenol, tobacco, you know, everything. And it's amazing how much this story is similar to aspirin, uh, ayahuasca, mushrooms, cannabis, tobacco. You know, this uh, all kind of, it, it's just all the same. Medicine has been taken and used for our societal gains. I'm trying to get you some better light here. Yes. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm going to have to add yeah, that yeah. book to the list, dude. That looks awesome. Um, 
And no, I yeah, was talking those... about an uh, article I, I wrote today, actually, called uh, The Proletariat and the Bourgeoisie of the Cannabis uh, Culture These Days. So, uh, yeah, it, I was just talking about how much uh, the working force, you know, this we've really been the voice of cannabis in our counterculture since the 70s. This has been something that we've used to support ourselves to get through our days to, you know, go work for the man. And now that it's becoming legalized, the man now has the power over it and we're losing it. And we really need to get together as one force, whether it be under the Origins Council or something like that, or the Last Prisoner Projects. You know, there's a lot of different entities out there doing really great work. And if we could really just pull together like they are and pull our resources together like they are, we could fight them and make some differences. And there are, you know, a few places that are doing that. Uh, out in California, for one, would be the Humboldt Legacy Grace Project. Uh, they're doing some absolutely phenomenal work around the country and around the world to help small farmers set a, uh, a baseline of how they need to be treated and teach people how they can file for uh, to get laws enacted. And to, like to how to actually people. interact with their lawmakers. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, those movements are really uh, necessary at this point and... And man, fighting a hell of a battle going up against the feds or big pharma and you know, investing on that on that front. Um, yeah, I s- definitely see the need Sorry, for that um, for that so attempt that or that need to I do. unite. Yeah, and a lot of things I do, I'm always looking for where can I set that moment of precedent? Where can I do it the right way? Where can I um, take my business, my, what I'm doing, and showcase it to help other people move our story along? You know, like taking the old men of the mountains hash bar down to 420 Washington Park. We got harassed by the New York City Police Department and the Parks Department. But as soon as I told them I was a, a certified ganjier out there doing education, they did 180 degrees and not only left me alone, but were fascinated by what we were doing out there. Wow. So they actually got a little bit of education there on their exactly. own. <laughs> yeah. So that's very cool. And we've Can got you another franchise doing that's doing the, the same bar? thing. Yeah, we've got another franchise doing the same thing. He set up publicly uh, where everybody's usually allowed to vent, and the police came to hassle him. And now he's, uh, you know, trying to set precedent out there. He wants to go do it again and, you know, just see if they will, you know, hassle him again and see if he can continue to fight the good fight. Now, I, I love that stuff. I really do. Anytime that, uh, you yeah, know, we see that passion. Like, for example, a garden that's supporting cancer patients isn't licensed, you know, at all, isn't playing the government's games at all. But they are taking a big chunk out of Big Pharma by healing cancer children, healing cancer patients of all ages. And right. to see Providing that happening without a piece of paper just warms my heart because <laughs> legacy never dies and there's nothing they can do to stop it. So, uh, you know, if, if their system's not working, we shouldn't be playing their games anymore. Just stop playing their games and they won't have the right. money to fight us anymore. That's the funny part, honestly. It's like, OK, well, if. If the feds were to take over or big farmer were to move in quickly, many of us are already comfortable operating in the gray area. So it's kind of yep. not a leap to maintain business. Um, yep. It starts to get risky, obviously. The tobacco but, industry 80 years ago. But look what's happened to it now. Just completely most standardized. Even, most people have never even seen a tobacco plant. They don't know how to cure it. No. And that's happening in our own culture right now. That's why Ganjais and people like us are so important to get that word out there 
about, you know, this is the proper way you can do things. Definitely, man. I feel like the consumer. Yeah, man. And the angle I've been trying to take is towards consumer education and trying to give people the stepping stones they need to find their version of connoisseurship. Kind of how can you take that enjoyment just beyond you're not just getting high or feeling the effects, but like, what is the flavor? Was that was that a fruity flavor? Was it was it earthy and kind of analyzing some of those effects? Because I think with a better appreciation from the consumers, farmers can actually price products at a reasonable price as well. Because if you get quality and your buyers understand quality, you don't have any like any disconnects, right? You're okay paying maybe yeah. a, a mid shelf or a reasonable price for that flower yeah. that was grown and reasonably. You're removing brokers and middlemen, and the farmers are actually getting what they deserve, and that's technically yeah. And you kind of stop that price slide where we're just seeing this race to the bottom, like how much cheaper can we make an eighth of flour in Nevada? It's pretty bad. And if you consider just a general eighth of flour you buy, it's crappy. (laughs) The bad truth of it, though, that's agriculture all around the world. Oh, that's a good point. I don't know many of them that aren't subsidized by the state or the government. Or, yeah, or with equipment all all off of their loans and and government programs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's just a race to the bottom the too. Industry that I know, I know very few that aren't substantially in debt. Yes, yeah, and I mean, even the I was in a like a dispensary training session, essentially how to open the dispensary, and they were showing some financial projections to expect your first few years, and it was bad. It was like yeah. you're basically failing completely for about three years, and then you can uh, break even yep. <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> so it's it's a tough fight right now on that on that yep. side. <laughs> now, if you want to start a business, what's next for start anything um, but a cannabis business? Right I saw now. that there's a everything's easier. Coming? You can start a restaurant easier than you could a cannabis. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, start up a like a coin laundromat. There you go. Easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can get the Way loan. Easier. You can get the rent. You can get some machines. You'd be up and running in like a week. <laughs> yep, be a life of a farmer is not an easy one. Yes, man. I told uh, I told folks that growing indoors is like doing construction in the closet. But yep. it's just like so much work going on in a single room, like a 12 by 12 room as you mix soil and change pots and grow and do everything in that space. It's hard work, man. Um, and definitely a no, uh, like a virtuous uh, pursuit, you know, spending time as a farmer and and producing anything. I think we have a society of consumption. So making and producing is is so valuable as well. Oh yeah, no, I've got uh, squash and tomatoes and everything I grew this year. And you know, you finally, uh, I dare you to calculate the money that you spend growing your own tomatoes. Don't ever do that. You you will not be happy with your outcome. <laughs> Most expensive <laughs> yeah, tomatoes but, you've ever had. And but how good, right? When you get a oh, slice so of your good. own tomatoes. Yeah. We all try to convince <laughs> ourselves that this is the cheapest way to go. And when you really start farming, you're like, man. It's actually quite hard to produce food cheaply enough for my whole family on how much we need. Yeah, I was reading an article recently about the amount of space that you would need to sustainably farm for a family. And I think it was average to like, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but I think it was 800 square feet per person. And they were talking about yeah, like the tracks right. of plants. I've seen a couple like, different designs that follow that. And yeah, okay. that works. But, you know, where is where's your terroir? Do you have good soil? use yeah that's another question how much how much you're going to be spending on amendments to get your soil correct 
uh, how much if, if you're starting with a bad property you know, there's a whole bunch of different stuff on each property you never know right right and that's where you know you could plant your whole garden out and find out that half of it's in the wrong you know out of the sun or in the wrong location yep. or in bad drainage yeah how did you go about uh, working on your property now and finding the most ideal place to grow is did you have a method or was oh, it more I, kind I really of analyzing throughout choice. the season uh, <laughs> that I, makes I it didn't easy. really have that much choice here um i've got like a lawn here that's my space for my garden over there and then forest and you can see from the tree line i only get about get seven shadowed. hours a day on that spot no hey sometimes the property decides for you <laughs> so, and it was all sand. So what I did, being Patrick King, his uh, you know fellow Ganjay himself, I had a whole bunch of his soil. So I amended all this sandy soil with his. I put uh, uh, about four or five gallons in each hole and then just mixed it in with the natural soil I had here. And they were doing really good oh, wow. up until uh, you know, the sepatoria kicked in. But that had nothing to do with the Soil King's dirt. That's just Maine being so freaking wet. That's just the environment. Yeah, man, you're battling monster humidity up there. Yep. Well, what's this about the cruise coming up that you'll be um, appearing on and, and spreading some cannabis love? Can a cruise yeah, in New so, York, um, I think I saw? Yeah, I, I do a lot of events down in New York City. Um, got invited by an event company down there when I first debuted the Hashish Tasting Bar. And that has just flowered into meeting everybody I thought I would never meet. You know, uh, Kyle Cushman, Danny Daco, uh, White Boy Kev from the Miranda Boys. I mean, I actually go on and on name dropping. I hate doing that stuff. I, I don't like it because I, I, I meet these people. They're just like us. It's great. You get just to hang out with your friends. And that's that's the best part of it for me. Right. Every once in a while you meet one that's kind of a jerk and you're like, oh, I thought you were cool, but oh, well. <laughs> yeah, you can move on. There's plenty of other folks, yep, right? Yep. <laughs> and so yeah, the, I think uh, I found that too, that. Many of the folks in the industry, if you can connect with them on what they're doing and you know provide the same value or match their passion, everyone's so willing to talk and you know celebrate what they love as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the NYC Canna Cruise that was uh, opportunity that that was presented um, by another. He he does some like major things. Like his last concert he put on was for Snoop Dogg, so he wanted me to uh, work with his boat he has. That carries 350 people. So we were thinking like 300 people in attendees, um, you know, another 50 for the vendors, VIPs, that kind of thing. And uh, we had that going pretty well, but we had to postpone it just because the gas for the boat is $7,000. So I got to make sure I've got Ooh. all my ducks in a row yeah. before we pull the trigger and have the date that we book without losing our deposit. And we got to be a little more careful with this venue than others. So. Just got to make yes, sure it's I can, I can imagine event planning introduces whole new variables and problems as you try to oh, yeah. line up how to get these events to go off without a hitch, even just setting up the logistics. Yeah, but my first uh, taste of it, I kind of grew up doing it with my dad. He raised money for the Mule Deer Foundation and the Turkey Federation. Um, he just retired and he figured out he raised about $11 million in my lifetime because I went to all that with him. Wow. And yeah, so man, that's I not got a to small do number. Banquets and events with him my whole life and wasn't really paying attention. I guess I was more than I thought. But uh Dan Klomstruff, who's another Gangier, he ended up working for the Boston Beer Company in Canada and they wanted to throw 
a, you know, it's kind of cannabis event party down here in Boston. So I found a venue down there. They offered me the gig, um, threw them a big party, uh, made a big uh, educational class of what's driving cannabis culture in Boston, had uh, the owners from the Boston Beer Company, like all of them, show up. It was absolutely insane. Had a whole bunch of cannabis people in Boston um, there as well, like a, a guy that ran for mayor. He was there and we're still now friends and doing lots of other cool projects together. And uh, that was the first event was that uh, it was at the Boston Cigar Lounge for the Boston Beer Company. And I didn't wow. realize that's kind of what I wanted to do until I did that. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I think uh, I'm going to get back into this and uh, <laughs> for sure. start doing things along this route because I already had all the experiment experience from my childhood. And my dad's yeah. still around, so I could call and ask him for advice on how to raise money or set up events and that kind of thing. Right. Right. And be it cannabis or turkeys, events are events and raising money is the same and he thing. He used to be right? real hard on me for <laughs> cannabis, but now he's, he's come around. He, uh, you know, he calls me his, his son, the professor cannabis guy or you know, yeah. all sorts of other <laughs> That's funny awesome. Stuff. Yeah. It's pretty <laughs> yep. good seeing your parents and family like come full circle. Like when I left K-State, I graduated K-State and went to Colorado to cultivate basically instead of finding a job like everyone else. Yep. And there was definitely some black sheep kind of feelings from different folks in the family. All of that's completely gone now. It's just like, oh yeah, this is like, they're actually like, oh, you made a good decision or like what a unique time yep. that you had to be able to do that. It's like the the perspective has changed so much, man. It's, and it's so welcome too. <laughs> no. And my dad, uh, he's been absolutely amazing. He was there for me when I got robbed. He welcomed me back into his house after well, all the shit went down. And so it was just, he's been an amazing force on my life. And uh, he was the one who taught me how to garden. Sounds I don't like think it. he realized he was teaching me how to grow cannabis at that point in time. But uh, <laughs> now I've yeah. been able to feed my family one way or another. And I think that's ultimately what he was trying to do. Yeah, man. I think that's what we could all want for our, for our kids, right? That we can pass on the info they need to uh, to be to be successful and, and take care of themselves and their own families. That's excellent, man. And and is your family all for my children now? And yeah, that's the, what I was going to ask. Are you cannabis growers? You know? kind of bringing them up in your steed. They'll be third generation farmers at this point. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's uh like they'll be fifth or sixth generation farmers and like thirteenth generation soldiers if my daughter enlists. Wow. Okay, man. Thirteenth. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> We've been in the military every generation for a long time. Yeah. Wow. Stocksteels have been had been armed since the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and farming. But that's great. Oddly man. enough, we're cool. usually on the losing side. So whatever side we're fighting on, you probably want to be on the other one. <laughs> uh, so there's a little bit of a little bit of history we can tell by that. <laughs> that's funny. Well, what uh, what event is next up for you, man? Anything else around the corner or in the near term? Oh, yeah. I've got the uh, the Hyde Lifestyle Show coming up in Massachusetts. It's a three-day event um, this weekend. It's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It is a event centered around the craft grower or the small grower. There's not going to be any MSOs there. They're not welcome. Beautiful. <laughs> um, there's going to be a lot of different tastings available, not just from uh, the Old Man of the Mountains tasting bar, but from all the other vendors that are going to be there. Um, there'll be some really good music and some cool stuff. Uh, it's actually, it actually seems like it's going to be a better event. You know, I've, I'm, I think at the end of this year, I'm going to come up with a uh, review of what events I thought were awesome, what events I wouldn't go back to. 
you know, that kind of thing. And I think yeah. that would really help people because there's just so many events out there right now. You can really just waste your time on the wrong ones. Oh, yeah, man. And I've been to the conferences before that are ghost towns. And oh, my you, favorite, my favorite one so far was a hotels. for Peter Grinspoon. <laughs> oh, was that a was that a quiet one? It was. There was only about 20 or 30 people there, but they were all doctors, lawyers, and professors, and they actually had questions that kept a ganjier on their toes. Ooh, that's awesome. They kind of pushed you. It was the most fun I had (laughs) all year, I think. Yes, yeah. I always liked that. Um, For a little while, I was giving software demos in the cannabis space. So I would come up and roll out the software, explain how to use it, and my favorite thing was to run into a user that could challenge me the same way that could poke holes yep. in the demo and say like, Oh, you missed this. Actually. I would just be like, dude, cheers. I'm not bored like, right now. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Like I was going through this routine thing and now you've, you've poked a hole in it, man. It's, it's wonderful. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You now that I, event I, sounds there's great. There's something that's come to my mind uh, several times through this interview here. And it's that, um, as a ganja, as myself, just as a salesman throughout my life, I always try to match the energy that the customer comes to me with. So if they come really pissed off at Gangier, I, I get really pissed off too. I'm like, yeah, I understand. You know, let's fucking work this out together and let's work around this and educate them. And I've brought more people to the program that way. It's, it's absolutely insane. And when people come up and they want to talk Terps and they get really in depth, you can hit them with that. But if somebody's coming up, they're just barely learning. You try to hit them with all that terpene information, thiols, esters, cultivation knowledge. You're going to overload them, and they just think you're uptight and some kind of jerk. And so it's it's real hard to learn how to read people. And that's something that I honestly think a lot of ganjays could be better at because I've heard a lot of stories about ganjays being too uptight and full of themselves. And uh Right. That's not good. <laughs> no, not at all. You really want to read the room and make sure you're kind of speaking to the speaking to the right audience. You know, I mean, nerding yeah, out about the terps and things is it's definitely great. And that maybe is a little pretentious for cannabis connoisseurship, but there's a time and a place. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. And absolutely. I think that, you know, watching some of the like transactions here in Vegas when I'm in the shop, so I can see there are consumers at times who just they don't want any kind of cannabis connoisseurship today. It doesn't mean that they won't be open to it sometime, but today they're just coming to to grab a quarter. (laughs) Yeah. They need to grab a quarter and pick their kids up and like try to get some sleep that night. And it's, it's not a good time to be like, Oh, have you tried this terpenaline dominant strain? It's (laughs) terpenaline. (laughs) Really? No mental faculties. Exactly. So I think it's, it's hard to meet people where they are, but then also like in the, find those opportunities when they're open to connoisseurship and the events that you're explaining and, and advocating for now, I think are perfect for that. They set the stage that this is a a place to come and talk about cannabis already. They set the stage that it's like, you know, beginner friendly. That's definitely the way to reach out to the community and make an impact. No, there was something that uh, Kevin had taught me on the side while I was there on the campus that had really stuck with me ever since. And that was, if you're trying to teach somebody, if you're trying to mentor somebody, don't tell them exactly what you want them to learn. I'm not saying exactly the same words you gave me, but I'm paraphrasing here. You want to drop a little nugget of knowledge on them that makes them open that door for themselves. And the more often that you can do that, the more that that person is going to learn. 
And so as, as a Ganjier, learning from the original Ganjier, I took that really to heart. And so when people do come up to me and they want to learn, I say, well, have you checked this out? Have you read this? Have you talked to yeah. this person? And then, they, then that gets that spark really, you know, gleaming back in their eyes. And that, that's, right. the, that's what I like doing. Kind of ignite that passion, asking questions against their question rather than just answering it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And that's a, and that's a constant skill you can, you can work on as well, man. I'm looking forward to see what kind of, what kind of certified Ganjiers everyone becomes with, you know, a decade of background or, or more like trying to really push the envelope on this space. It's been, uh, it's been excellent to be part of the program and, and to meet all the folks in it as well, man, as a, as a whole family of Ganjiers. I agree. We had some huge news happen to this weekend at the uh, Boston Freedom Rally. We got invited to uh, Barcelona next year with the Hashish Tasting Bar. Yes. So oh, that'll wow. be the same time as Spanibus. We'll be out there. It'll be our first time in Europe with all this, and it should be just a freaking hoot, man. Yeah, that's going to be fun, man, for sure. I'll, I'll have to try to get out there to the Spanibus here this next year. I, I was checking everything out this year, but my daughter was born in February, uh, so i I'm waiting a little oh, while. Congratulations, to leave the country. by the way, man. First <laughs> yeah, one, that, thank you, that dude. is just mind blowing. <laughs> All right. I'm I'm here to tell the story. We're doing okay still. <laughs> but it's definitely well, an adjustment. You'll have to sure. deal with everything I dealt with. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm knocking on wood there. Like I'm happy that society's turned some corners to make it easier on folks in yep. the industry to to have families and you know be a little more stable on that front. Awesome, Charles. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, dude. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the next events for Old Man of the Mountain? Um, the easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn under Charles Stockstill or on Instagram under the period Old Man of the Mountain. And that's usually where I uh, post all my info or or you can go to the Hashish Tasting Experience. It's a new page because they deleted my old one. So <laughs> <laughs> got to stay on your toes. Yep, exactly. Well, Rob, I really appreciate you having me out. And uh, uh, this has been my second interview now, so I'm not quite as nervous, but still quite a a lot. So (laughs) I'm really glad to be here and to to share share who I am or any knowledge that I can bring forth to the community or or if if there's any Ganjays or the like out there that are looking for a way to put their skills to work, I've got a way for you to do that. So let's talk. Thank you for listening to the Apartment 113 podcast. For more information about the show, along with our services and courses, visit apt113.com. We offer cannabis software product management, cannabis education courses, and freelance writing. With over a decade of experience in the cannabis industry, Apartment 113 is here to help.